this is a bonus episode. All right, shall we go to, we're, we're not going to call it a deep dive today because given all of the Tournament of Champions uh, buzz and conversation, um, we've spent a lot of time on that. Um, but I have, I have more of a shallow dive. Let's get your guesses, Kyle. Do you have guesses about where we're going? Oh, nuts. Oh, no, I wasn't even beginning to think about this uh i'm gonna oh you wouldn't you wouldn't i wouldn't what this isn't about cape colony is it it's not about oh okay we're about to end this podcast at two and a half episodes uh no i actually i truly honestly have no guess so I, i am going back to your game okay um i'm going back to single jeopardy i'm going back to the first clue Oh, okay. Which, Actually, you know, I was gonna guess that. Dang it! I should have just guessed it. All right. All right. You can you can retroactively guess it. Kyle called it. We're going. No, back to it's the first it's clue. fine. I don't um, want to lie. Like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the category was homophones, and the clue was an old word for the Christian cross, or a description of one's impolite disposition, and uh, the it was a triple stumper. The correct response was rude, R-O-O-D, or R-U-D-E, which came to me right away, possibly because I'm a minister, but possibly because I have studied in my life four dead languages, Biblical Greek, Biblical Hebrew, Latin, and Anglo-Saxon. Ooh. Yeah, I took a year of Anglo-Saxon in college. Um, I was a freshman. Freshmen were required to take a language. I was thinking about being an English major, and the Anglo-Saxon course fulfilled both the freshman language requirement and the English major pre-whatever-it-is, pre-1400, pre-1500, I don't know, Mm. um, Mm. requirement. I'm not sure that taking Anglo-Saxon was the right decision because I was not that into it. But I got rude right away um, because there's a famous Anglo-Saxon poem, famous is maybe a little strong, um, called The Dream of the Rude. Sure, famous for English-Saxon poems. Yes. Uh, So so let me take us through a little bit about Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon poetry, uh, a little bit about The Dream of the Rude. I... If we were short, I was going to do like a quick little tour through Beowulf, but we can leave oh, that alone. <laughs> that's Beowulf will come up again on Jeopardy, so we can save it for then. But I would love that. Okay, uh, we'll we'll put a pin in that. Um, uh, so, um, what is Anglo-Saxon? Um, and uh, if you're taking Anglo-Saxon in college, people will be like, "Oh, is you just put an e on the end of everything?" Like, no. That's Anglo-Saxon is also known as Old English. Um, both are technically correct terms for what it is. Um, it's not just put an E on the end of everything. And then the next guess that people will have is, oh, like in the Canterbury Tales. It's not like the language in the Canterbury Tales. That is called Middle English. Mm. Um, so Anglo-Saxon is Old English. It's pre-1066. Ah, before the Norman invasion. Before the Norman invasion, right. Um, So 1066, Battle of Hastings, Norman invasion. Um, Subsequent to that, there are huge changes in the language, and that's a sort of a a newer form of English at that point. Um, So Old English is uh, what was spoken in England before the Norman invasion. So a huge proportion of languages trace back to what linguists call Proto-Indo-European 
um, which we have no examples of, but they've sort of theorized the common roots of languages. Um, so from Proto-Indo-European, there's the Germanic family, um, and then within that, West Germanic, and then I don't even know how to say it, but Ingvaeonic is within that. Anglo-Frisian is a grouping within that. Um, and then you get to Anglo-Saxon, the specific language. Mm -hmm. So the Anglo-Saxons are this Germanic group. They arrive in Great Britain in the fifth century, um, speaking what we now see as the earliest form of English. Um, we think of it that way because uh, the syntax is mostly the same as modern English syntax. Um, and many of our most important English words are from Old English. And so like you could not read an Old English text if you saw it, but all of our, our most important words are like recognizably there um, and word order. Uh, hmm. is is shared so so we consider it you know sort of the ancestor of English um, modern English uh, so when they get there there are in there are the people who are indigenous to that area um, speaking um, Celtic languages um, there's some Latin uh, there from Roman colonization and they arrive speaking this Germanic language um, later there's going to be the Norman invasion uh, which will bring with it kind of a Romance language like French Norman influence, but yeah, that's a that's a thumbnail sketch of kind of the the language families and some of the history around that. Anglo-Saxon has um, a distinctive orthography. Um, they start off using a runic system, but later they adopt the Roman alphabet. Um, the Roman alphabet, as you probably know, has no J and it has no W, and then. Anglo-Saxon doesn't use the letters K, Q, or Z. And then there are four additional letters in Anglo-Saxon, uh, which I can't show you because it's a podcast. Um, but, <laughs> All right, listeners, look are. really hard. <laughs> uh, but they are called uh, Ash, Eth, Thorn, and Wynn. Um, oh, those are the coolest names for letters. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, and I'm trying to remember because it was a good long time ago now. I should have I should have gotten this into my notes. But there's um, at least one of them is a th sound, and then one is like a like the like that a e looking vowel. Um, mm -hmm. That's uh, that's one of those, and I can't remember the other two. Um, so uh, so that's that's a mini introduction to Anglo-Saxon. Um, so moving into Anglo-Saxon poetry. You know, you think that non-rhyming poetry is like a modern invention, but Anglo-Saxon poetry does not rhyme. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it, it's alliterative verse. Um, does that sounding familiar from whenever you have encountered Beowulf in the past? Yeah, um, that, that does ring a bell. And also I seem to remember learning somewhere that uh, the Latin, uh, or the, the like Roman and Latin poets uh, and orators looked at rhyme as almost vulgar and it was something mm. to be avoided huh so i don't i don't That's i don't know where that comes from don't know if it's true but it's something yeah I remember. um yeah and i i wonder i mean in latin where you're using where the the ends of words mostly have to do with like you're, you're communicating grammatical information um you know it's it's like almost a little too easy to rhyme maybe sure so um the poetic system is structured around um, stressed syllables and alliter alliteration. Um, so each line of poetry has two half lines. 
there's a pause in the middle um, and then each half line has two syllables that are like this called the stressed syllables and then usually three of those syllables will alliterate the two stressed syllables of the first half line and then the first stressed syllable of the second half line but the the final stressed syllable should not alliterate. That's that's the um, the norm. Um, there are some complicated systems around how that works exactly, and like uh, old English scholars will argue back and forth and try and create different models of like uh, how meter works and which variations are acceptable. And because we don't have anyone to explain it to us, nobody wrote down how that all worked. Mm. And then another characteristic piece of Anglo-Saxon poetry is um, figures of speech we call kennings, which are uh, two elements combining to form a metaphor. So like whale road is the sea um, or heaven candle for sun. Hmm. They work really well with the alliterative scheme because in order to, in order to write or you know, in order to compose this alliterative poetry, um, you need to be creative with ways to uh, ways to say what you want to say, but alliterate with whatever you need to alliterate with. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting way to approach it. Yeah. Um, so we of course know about Beowulf, and we'll come back to that someday. I, I promise it'll be super exciting. But a couple of other uh, works of. Anglo-Saxon poetry that I wanted to highlight to know about. Um, there's a very short one that is well known and has and has been found in multiple languages all over the place. Um, Cadman's hymn. Um, it's the oldest recorded English poem. It's only nine lines, um, and the legend around it is that it is by an illiterate cowherder <laughs> named Cadman. Nice. Um, so he miraculously. Uh, wrote this poem of praise to God. Um, it's called a hymn. It's not really a hymn. There's no evidence that it was used, you know, like a, as a hymn in worship. Okay. Um, uh, so that's Cadman's hymn. And then we have the dream of the rude, which is how we got to this topic. Sure. Um, so the dream of the rude is, um, uh, it's the earliest dream poem in the English language. And uh, a fragment of it was found on a cross in Scotland um, later in 1822. The full text was found um, in the Vercelli manuscript, which was discovered in northern Italy. It's a 10th century manuscript of Anglo-Saxon works. And this poem has three parts, um, but it's a poem about, you know, the speaker dreams of um, the cross where Jesus was crucified. Um, so there's like this little preface where the speaker is saying that he was dreaming and then he tells us about the dream that he um, he sees a cross with jewels on it and is sort of overwhelmed by its splendor. Hmm. Um, and then as he continues to look on at it, he sees that it's drenched in blood. I uh, huh. all of it has to be it. You you can't really read it in in Anglo-Saxon and expect anyone to understand it. But I I did find a translation by uh, Aaron K. Hostetter uh, so that we could get a little taste of it. So in in part one. Um, he sees the cross. Uh, surpassing was this victory tree. So there's one of those kennings. Uh, and me splattered with sins, struck through with fault, I saw this tree of glory well worthied in its dressing, shining in delights, geared with gold. Um, and I think the translator here tried to 
preserve some of the alliterative stuff. Hmm. So that's part one. Um, I mean, it's longer than that. That was an excerpt from part one. Sure. Um, and then in part two, the cross speaks, which is kind of cool. You wouldn't expect that from, you know, a poem from a thousand years ago. I would, I mean, maybe, maybe yes, you would. All right. Um, so, <laughs> all right. So in part two, the cross speaks to the dreamer um, and sort of tells its story. It talks about being chopped down and brought to the hill and seeing Jesus and having Jesus nailed to it. Um, and it's described as this sort of ordeal of being like pierced and soaked with Christ's blood um, and all of creation lamenting. Um, but now the cross says it's honored far and wide as the cross where Jesus died. And then the cross goes on to exhort humanity to have faith. Hmm. Uh, and then part three, the dreamer is reflecting on what he's heard and having like heard from the cross in this dream, he's like newly committed to his faithfulness and his hope for uh, to be in, in heaven with Christ. Hmm. So the dream of the rude, if you had had to translate it, you would have gotten that one right away. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, ha um, I had never heard that. I'd never heard that, that term before. Now, you know, now, you know, yes, that's, that's, uh, Bill Nye. Do you think, it's sort of do you think Bill Nye would, would let us have that soundbite? Oh, probably not. No, I don't know. No, probably not. <laughs> okay. So this quiz is titled how rude, and it is a quiz on etiquette crosses and regrets um okay <laughs> <laughs> that is r-u-e-d things that people rude oh oh i thought you were just uh just oh thought you were, that you were throwing me under the bus for regretting going for that clue first nah <laughs> no I, I i i was uh leading into the homophone mm, um mm, gotcha okay all right okay you ready yes okay question one a 2014 hit single asks why you gotta be so rude and asserts that the singer is gonna marry that girl, marry her anyway. The title of the song, of course, is Rude. Name the artist. I can hear it. Um, oh, man. I'm, when, um, I, I have one name and I'm pretty sure it's wrong. But as we have talked about on this episode, I guess I might as well give the name. You're gonna you're gonna say I don't know, Bruno Mars. All right, that's not a bad guess, but the correct answer is Magic. Magic. I know that. I, I mean, like, yeah, I know the song. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, I think so far I'm not sure they've had another hit chart. I I almost added a clue about like the since then they've vanished. Oh, um, uh, that would um, that would not have gotten me there. I don't think. Okay. Um, yeah, but I hadn't I hadn't fact checked uh, exactly uh, whether it, whether I could correctly say they'd had no hits since then or whether there had been hits like in on other charts or in other countries or whatever. Sure. Um, anyway, all right. Question two. In several Christian traditions, the true cross is the name for what are believed to be the preserved physical remnants of the cross on which Jesus was crucified. Relics that are said to be part of the true cross can be found throughout the world and are so numerous that John Calvin perhaps rudely quipped that if they were all collected together, they could fill a ship. 
One such fragment was carbon dated to the 11th century, suggesting that it was not authentic to the original discovery in the 4th century of the so-called True Cross, which was unearthed by what famous Christian, the mother of Emperor Constantine? Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. I, wow, that question was, took us on a journey. Um. I, yes, I like. I sort of regret not doing the deep dive on the on the true cross. Sure. Oh man. Oh. Although, like, how would I have gotten there, really? You know. Oh, the mother of Constantine. I know this. In fact, I got a question on my first episode of in of my run about Constantine seeing the cross on the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh no. I'm not going to get it. Momstantine. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Helena. Helena. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 0 for 2. <clears throat> yeah. Time to sit up straight. Um, yeah. Uh, the legend goes that she, um, on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, had a temple to either Venus or Jupiter torn down and excavated under it where she found three crosses. Um, and they brought a woman who was deathly ill there and had her touch each cross. And the one that cured her was the true cross, they decided. Um, huh. That's the legend. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Question three. Um, many inventors have rued their creations. In 2010, one inventor wrote a letter to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church saying, quote, I keep coming back to the same questions. If my rifle claimed people's lives, can it be that I, an Orthodox believer, am to blame for their deaths, even if they are my enemies? End quote. Who is this man, the inventor of the AK-47? Oh, okay. I was, if we didn't get there, I was going to go back and ask about specifics in the question. Uh, I believe, I believe the K uh, in AK-47 stands for Kalashnikov. You are correct. Yes. Yeah. Wounded in World War II and in the hospital, he overheard fellow soldiers lamenting that their rifles were unreliable and started Mm. to design the AK-47 after he recovered. Um, And the 47 is because that's when he finalized his design. Mm -hmm. design. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a reason that, I mean, this may be getting a, a bit dark, but there's a reason that, like, AK-47s are the go-to gun for, like, you know, militant groups and, yeah. uh, you know, freedom fighters and terrorist organizations and everything because they work. They are reliable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it sounds like that has, uh, he, he has, I didn't copy the quote down, but he, um, he's been adamant that it was intended for defense um, and that, you know, I think being this and being the inventor of this, of this thing has, um, has raised some real moral questions for him later in life. Oh, sure. I mean, I can yeah. only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Question four. Uh, the history of art is full of representations of Christ on the cross, but perhaps none so controversial as the one created by photographer Andre Serrano in 1987. The work is titled Immersion, although it's better known by its subtitle. It is a photograph of a crucifix submerged in what liquid? I'm trying really hard to pull this image, and I don't know that I've ever actually seen this. So this is going to be pulling some context. It's from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. 
and it's submerged in a liquid. I feel like blood would be too simple, too obvious, but here I go, I'm probably gonna, that's probably right. Uh, but given probably more political purpose behind the, 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 the artistic choice, what's jumping into my mind and I'm just gonna go with is oil, as in like crude oil or petroleum. Not a bad guess. Okay. Um, the correct the correct answer is urine. So this is a famously controversial photograph. Um, it was heavily protested at the time, um, and it's better known by its subtitle, which is "Piss Christ." Um, huh. I found yeah. <laughs> so um, Serrano um, does not seem to rue uh, to bring back that theme uh, sure. creating the work, uh, but he has clarified. Um, he says, "I meant." neither blasphemy nor offense by it. I've been a Catholic all my life, so I am a follower of Christ. Um, that doesn't seem to make any difference to the protesters. So. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 meant to, I meant to turn my difficulty level up and it looks like it worked. No, yeah, uh, definitely. Now, now I'm gonna have, now I'm gonna have piss Christ in my Google search history, that's fun. <laughs> sorry. That's all right. Yeah, all right, question five. Ten years after the publication of a work entitled The Final Problem, the author of a famous series rued his decision to end the series with the protagonist's death. He went on to bring the protagonist back and write several more works about the beloved character. Can you deduce the author? Uh, I believe The Final Problem uh, was a... And, and I, I might be mixing it up with some other stories... Um, I, I believe that was kind of the almost like the unsolvable mystery for Sherlock Holmes and uh, if I recall that's that was his like showdown with Moriarty uh, when he uh, tumbled down the Reichenbach fall but then as you mentioned Sir Arthur Conan Doyle brought him back yes uh, you totally got that one and knew more about the story than I did, oh. I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Arthur Conan Doyle said, if I had not killed him, he would certainly have killed me. Um, mm. But I think the fan outcry was, was too much for him to, to stay with it. He, he had to bring him back and write more about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking right. of, um, if you've never watched the show Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, so I've watched good. a great deal of it. It's so good. Yeah. And they, the way that they've adapted it to, like, modern day, so good. Oh, mm -hmm. my gosh. Anyway. All right. So uh, you have 20 points, and we're going into final. Um, you can wager some, all, or none of them. Well, 20 points. That's not going to get me a wild card spot, so I got to bet it all. All right. For, uh, all right. So for 20 points, any etiquette buff can tell you that RSVP stands for Répondez, s'il vous plaît or respond if you please. Uh, there's another phrase, this one in English, to put on your invitation. If you want people to respond only if they are unable to attend the event, name that phrase. I'm trying to picture um, wedding invitations and things like that. We're a few years past the the big spate of weddings among all of my, my friends and everything, so it's been a little while. It's in English, and it's only if you are not planning to attend? That's correct. Um, oof. I think we're about to... I think, think, think we're about to have 
uh, a couple zeros in a row. Uh, I'm not going to pull it. I'm going to go with nose only. Okay, so the answer is, and I'm sorry for connecting it. So it's a little on the nose. Regrets only. Oh, I have never known that that's what that means. I yeah. I have seen that before, and I've been like, that's an odd thing to put on your invitation. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, I mean, it's sort of delightfully optimistic, right? Like that if we don't hear from you, we assume you'll be there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Huh. All right. So. Um, Oof. Oh. All right. Mm, got a zero. I deserve that after last week, though. I'm sorry. I did. I did successfully turn up my difficulty level, and I was very pleased with my my writing because I managed to like get multiple themes into most of the questions. Oh yeah, no, they they were very good yeah. questions. They were Thank very you. good. All right, so listeners, hopefully you were able to uh, you're able to pull some some better answers than I would. Hopefully you don't regret the time you've spent with us today. Thanks for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe to Potent Potables wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you can leave us a review or a star rating, we would really appreciate it. Tell your Jeopardy fan friends about us too. Yeah, word of mouth is the best way for us to uh, to spread this around and, and uh, get people listening. So be sure to do that. We will be back next week uh, recapping the semifinals and finals at the Tournament of Champions. And we and I am still so pumped. Yeah. Yeah, it, it'll be good. Like the quarterfinals were good and, I'm, and, and it will just continue on. It, they, they are a good slate of shows. So be sure to watch, be sure to listen, and we may have a special uh, special surprise for you next week. If I have to edit this out or apologize for it next week, then, uh, then I'll have to do that. So until next time, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.